0: The Last King of America, The Misunderstood Reign of George III. In naming this the Book of the Year, the Times of London called the volume Magisterial. My colleague at the Hoover Institution, Victor Davis Hanson, calls the author of this book, quote, the most accomplished historical biographer in the English-speaking world. With us today, that author, historian Andrew Roberts, author of The Last King of America, on Uncommon Knowledge, now. Welcome to Uncommon Knowledge. I'm Peter Robinson. A graduate of Gonville-Keyes College, Cambridge, the historian Andrew Roberts is a professor at King's College London, a lecturer at the New York Historical Society and the Roger and Martha Mertz Visiting Fellow at the Hoover Institution here at Stanford. Dr. Roberts is the author of more than a dozen major works of history, including Napoleon, A Life, Churchill, Walking with Destiny, and now, The Last King of America, The Misunderstood Reign of George III. Andrew, welcome.
1: Thank you very much, Peter. It's great to be back on the show.
0: Um, A couple of opening questions, if I might. And the first involves just a few seconds of perhaps the most influential portrait of George III, Prior, at least, to the publication of your book, which comes, of course, from the musical Hamilton.
1: And when push comes to shove, I will send a fully armed battalion to remind you of my love. Da, 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 da.
0: <laughs> when push comes to shove, says George III in Hamilton, I will send a fully armed battalion to remind you of my love.
1: Fair? No, not at all fair. (laughs) I I tap my foot to Hamilton as much as everybody else. Um, But uh, there's another song, of course, where he talks about how he's going to kill your friends and family to remind um, you of uh, his love. In fact, um, he was a benevolent monarch. He was a... um, uh, a true enlightenment monarch. And um, he was a Renaissance prince in many ways. And he was far from that uh, sort of camp uh, preening um, sadistic character in uh, Hamilton the musical.
0: can I just, I, I get the, of course you spent th- three years on this book. And the Queen uh, recently released some 100,000 pages of papers dealing with George III, many in his own hand as I gather. You've read that material, so you've kept company with the man, and I can't escape the feeling in the book that you like him. Yes, and uh, that's
1: why I use the word misunderstood in the um, in the subtitle because he has been hugely traduced by uh, historians, not just American historians, which you'd expect, but also by British historians, the Whig historians of the nineteenth and. Uh, 20th centuries have attacked him as well for things that he simply was not guilty of. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, one of them is the the form of his madness, which I'm sure we'll uh, We'll get on to to uh, later. But mainly it's the concept of him being a tyrant, which of course Thomas Jefferson made um, these ad hominem attacks on him in the
0: Declaration of Independence. I'll come to that as well. So so here's my second just sort of first question. I'd like just to establish this. a passage I'm going to quote to you from the last King of America. Quote, the year 1775 ended with the British having signally failed to strangle the rebellion in its cradle. Although some in the government wanted to concentrate on blockading the colonies into eventual submission, the majority, including the king, were determined upon a land war to force the issue. So George III, liberal, humane, generous, likable, devoted husband and father. But at least at one moment, he actually did wish the war against the Americans. Once the Americans had already um, started the conflict
1: at uh, Lexington and Concord, yes, he was very much in favor of sending the battalions. Um, But um, the point was that there was no precedent in history for um, colonies just being allowed to go. Right. Uh, you don't get that in the 19th century. You hardly need to mention it to an American uh, about the effect of secession of, um, right. of certain states. And then actually you can take it through up until the 20th century. It's not until, um, until 1905 that a, um, that a country, i.e. Norway and Sweden, actually split apart without any bloodshed. Really?
0: 1905? Hmm. All right. Of course, the French are still fighting at Phu in 1958, and on and on it goes. Well,
1: absolutely, and uh, and you can see that in uh, in lots of later parts in the 20th century, but to expect an 18th century Hanoverian monarch uh, to just let America go without a shot being fired is, I'm afraid, completely um, right. impossible.
0: We will return to this. George III, he's born in 1738. He dies in 1820. This is a Good long life, especially by 18th century standards. He comes to the throne at the age of 22 in 1760. The last king to believe he ruled by divine right is Charles I, who's executed in 1649. The last monarch to refuse the royal assent, to use the royal veto is Queen Anne, and she does so in 1708. The last king to lead troops in in battle is George III's grandfather, George II, and he had done so in 1743. So as George III comes to the throne in 1760, by then nobody believes a king, an English king, rules by divine right. Nobody believes that he he possesses in practice the power to veto legislation, and nobody expects him to lead troops in battle. This is a tricky bit for an American to grasp. When he comes to the throne in 1760, what's his job? His job is a limited constitutional monarch
1: under the precepts of the Glorious Revolution of 1688. So his um, family have been on the throne because they're Protestants. So one of his jobs is to be a Protestant. Uh, and you You'd better g- give us a sentence or two on 1688. OK, the Glorious Revolution which overthrew the uh, Stuarts was King James the Second was... Um, Uh, In part because he was a Catholic, yes, and so they, uh, the Hanoverians, came eventually to the throne because they were not Catholics, right? And so one of his primary duties um, is uh, is to be a Protestant, which was fine because he was a believing Anglican and uh, and a pious Christian indeed. Um, But also, although he had the right to um, to appoint prime ministers. and uh, And indeed, governments cabinet ministers saw themselves as being responsible to him personally. Mm-hmm. Uh, he only on one occasion in the entirety of his uh, very long reign, which, as you say is the longest reign of any king of England is um, uh, once when he appointed William Pitt the Younger to be Prime Minister without the majority of the House of Commons, which was subsequently vindicated in the next general election. So he was somebody who very much revered the uh, British Constitution and, uh, and was not like the absolutists of the past.
0: Yes, the, uh, the absolutists of the past but also his contemporaries on the continent. The, 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 business, the, the argument that he's not a tyrant the liberality of the man, the the way he's willing to live within the constraints of the British Constitution comes out especially sharply, at least to this reader, when you contrast him with? Well,
1: absolutely. You contrast him with Catherine the Great, of course, or Frederick the Great in uh, Prussia. Uh, Certainly the Bourbons in France uh, who behave so absolutist that they wind up having a revolution against them, of course, during his reign. Uh, or the, um, the Spanish who uh, execute people, um, and the ringleaders of uh, uprisings in Louisiana and so on during this period. And so you can see pretty much any other um, non-limited monarchy at the time um, was of an entirely different ilk from somebody who, like George III, essentially went along with the common law. Right. um, Who never arrested any American editors or closed any newspapers in America or any of these kind of things which a tyrant would have done in the 18th century.
0: Right. Uh, And you draw out that it's important to George III's formation that there are intellectuals at the time who are sorting out the job of king. And you mention in particular Bolingbroke who writes the idea of a patriot king. Well, this is key.
1: This is a key uh, text uh, written in the 1740s, so when um, George III was still a boy, but written for George III's father, Mm -hmm. uh, Frederick Prince of Wales, who everybody expected would become king. And it really sets out a Tory as opposed to a Whig concept of of a monarch who personifies the nation and who, um, uh, is, is a sort of unifying figure, not just for Whigs, who were the people who had run the country ever since the Glorious Revolution for the last 80 years, but also for outsiders, people like Tories and, uh, and Scots, you'd better
0: take, a, 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 I'm sorry, but a, again, <laughs> a, a sentence or two to explain what Tory, what, what does Tory and Whig mean in that context at that time?
1: The Whigs tended to be the um, oligarchic cousinage of aristocrats who had ruled um, Britain For eighty years, the Tories were lower down on the social scale, but still important. They were the gentry; um, they they owned land, uh, but nothing like the amount of land that the um, that the aristocracy owned. Um, But they were a um, a different um, form
0: of cousinage, essentially. Right. I'm going to quote you one more time. George's essays. This is his essays as a young man suggest a young man who revered the way the Glorious Revolution had brought about liberty, took William III, who's the monarch whom the Whigs bring over from Holland to replace James II, took William III for his role model as king and passionately agreed with his father, Frederick, Prince of Wales, and Bolingbroke on the personal role of the monarch in defending the people against an overweening aristocracy. So this is an adjustment, at least for this American, the adjustment that the American has to make. Ah, I, we, at least I tend, I'll stop trying to represent all Americans, <laughs> there's a tendency to think of the monarch at the top of the system of aristocracy. And George III said, no, 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 I'm not, an, it's me and the people against that lot. Precisely, yes. And you see it later with
1: the thought of Disraeli, for example, and other um, political philosophers, whereby there has to be a, um, a, a force in society that is so powerful that they can negate uh, anything
0: that would oppress the, um, the ordinary people. Mm. One last aspect of uh, George's intellectual and psychological background that strikes me as important, so important that we Mention, here we are trying to reduce an ox to, the, to a bullion cube. <laughs> um, again, he comes to the throne in 1760, and just 14 years earlier, the Battle of Culloden, Culloden has taken place in which English troops loyal to George III. The second. I beg your pardon, George the Second, thank you, suppress Scottish troops who are loyal to the exiled Stuarts. And you write, George III, he he grew up in the knowledge that this that his accession to the throne was still threatened. Instinctive to the Hanoverian dynasty was the assumption that rebellions, if they could not be reasoned with, must be crushed by overwhelming force." Close quote. So, again, we tend to think the madness of George III. That we, George tends to be presented, at least in popular culture in this country, toward the end of his reign when the reign is totally secure. But just when, when he was a child, there was still a rebellion taking place on the island of Great Britain. And a really dangerous rebellion. Uh, the, um, uh, the Scottish army
1: under uh, Bonnie Prince Charlie got to Derby, which is only 120 miles north of London. Mm. And uh, so they were literally only a few days' march away. Um, they stopped and returned. but. Um, but the uh, panic in London, I don't know whether, nobody knows whether George III could have got a sense of the panic in London. He was only seven years old, but uh, he'd have he- definitely heard about it later on in his life, where the banks crashed. Um, the, uh, they tried to move the gold out of the Bank of England. Mm-hmm. The, um, the royal family considered jumping back to Hanover, which is where they came from. Mm-hmm. You know, it was, a, uh, it was a terrifying moment where the whole of the um, Hanoverian uh, succession might have collapsed.
0: All right, that that strikes me as important to bear in mind as part of the background of the man. Um, as we come to the next topic, which is of course, this is I have to say, this is six or seven chapters in this book of more than twenty chapters, as I recall. But it's the six or seven chapters that matter to an American. <laughs> so the rebellion. Um, we set the context. American colonists hold the eastern seaboard of this continent, but French, the French populate what is now Quebec. And as the American colonists move west and the French move south, they bump into each other. There's trouble. I quote you again, the last king of America. On 17 May, 1756, France and Britain declared hostilities It was a conflict that would later be described as history's first world war, close quote. And it's a conflict that has almost no place in the American consciousness, because we start with the revolution. But you argue the revolution can't be understood without grasping what took place a couple of decades earlier.
1: Absolutely, no. Right. And Americans should be should should definitely understand about what you call the French and Indian Wars and what we call the um, Seven Years' War, because essentially it started here. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, in uh, 1754 there were clashes between the American colonists and the uh, and the French, and that uh, rippled all the way through into what I call and um, other historians call a world war, and so it's essential that. Um, one appreciates that uh, by the time of 1763, when that war ends, um, you have the French taken off the continent. They were no longer any kind of threat to the American colonists, because they had been soundly and completely defeated in the French and Indian Wars. And so uh, the nearest French army is in Haiti, a thousand miles away. And this is the moment, therefore, when the Americans can uh, create themselves as a, as a new and independent nation, and where they can grasp their self-government. And that accomplishment,
0: I'm an American, you're an Englishman. What a Frenchman might make of my putting it this way, I don't know. But the accomplishment of ridding North America of of any French power to speak of Mm. is directed from London. Yes, but it's directed by William Pitt, the elder. All right. Americans participate, Washington, uh, George Washington as a young man participates in a campaign. But that is a, that is an accomplishment of empire. That's right, and paid for, of course, which is the key Which which is is what we come to, which we come to as a difficult undertaking and an expensive undertaking, and Britain imposes a tax on tea, prompting the 1773 Boston Tea Party. Where's George III in that? Well, and am I moving too quickly? You're I'm trying moving I'm you're moving a little bit. Li- li- yeah. All right, no, well, slow me down. I, I want to just start with the Stamp Act, oh, uh, of which, course. of course, is,
1: is the, um, is in, along with the Sugar Act, is the original proper. Um, uh, OK, problem. we'll do stamp, sugar, and tea. Yes. <laughs> all right. <laughs> um, so with the, uh, with the Stamp Act, this was an imposition that was going to be made, and it was a, it was a new tax, and everybody of course hates uh, them, quite rightly, uh, and it was a tax that wasn't going to raise that much money, about 50,000 pounds, which if you divide it between 2.5 million Americans, or at least 1.9 million unenslaved Americans, is a, still a tiny amount of money, two shillings and sixpence per American per year. But the drawback was with it, that A, it was a new tax, mm-hmm. and B, it was a tax that that was levied on, um, largely on lawyers and journalists who, as we know, even to this day, uh, could be voluble. Um, And there's that wonderful line that um, from the 19th century saying that you should never annoy somebody who buys ink by the barrel.
0: Yes. And this was,
1: uh, therefore, not paid. Except in uh, in Georgia, nobody paid the Stamp Act, and instead they uh, attacked the uh, people who needed to raise it, and tarred and feathered them, and so on. And started the whole of this concept, especially when there was a Stamp Act Congress, and people came together from all of the colonies to um, to
0: oppose it. Mm. All right, sugar and tea. Um, Sugar, not. Excuse me, no. I'm sorry, but on the Stamp Act, where's George? Uh, He's in favor of it at the beginning, but
1: when it was clear that the Americans are not paying it, he was, uh, he put a lot of
0: parliamentary influence to make sure that it was repealed. All right. Now, can I just ask, what is the mechanism by which the king exerts influence?
1: Well, he uses the immense power of honors. If it's clear that the king is uh, totally opposed to something, then it's a very brave MP uh, who votes for it, because it's clear that that MP is never going to be Sir so-and-so or Lord so-and-so. And uh, so that's the, um, that's the number one uh, power that he has, really. All right. And
0: uh, I want to continue. This is the moment to bring it up, I think. In the book, you make clear how First of all, he's a very, he writes, he seems to write constantly. He's an extremely literate figure. He collects tens of thousands of books. His library is now the nucleus of the uh, British Library. Library. Mm -hmm. He writes document after document after document. As we said, there are thousands of extant documents in his own hand. And he's constantly doing walkabouts and meetings and levies where he's going, people stand in a square and he goes around the room chatting with people. Mm. So, he knows these parliamentarians. This is a group of people who actually know each other. Well, he knows. Is that correct. He, it's, it is correct. He 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 knows the government side.
1: In fact, uh, opposition MPs are not invited to uh, levees um, or drawing rooms, as they're called, where where you have face-to-face contact with the king, which is obviously so important in 18th-century society. But um, but it's confined really to the um, to the um, side of uh, Parliament that the king.
0: Approves of. But if he doesn't have contact with the opposition, sorry, I'm, I'm anticipating one of the, if I'm anticipating, let's just get the question out right now, <laughs> uh, it is, we'll go back we, we still have to do sugar and tea. I don't have to do sugar because it's essentially the same story as stamps. All right, thank you. You just, you just <laughs> saved a little television time. But even as it is often said that the Vietnam War was lost in Congress, you make the point that the government had to try to conduct this war on the far side of the Atlantic Ocean, a logistically complicated and tremendously expensive endeavor, while at the same time facing quite a lot s- stiff and informed and articulate opposition at Westminster, is that correct? That's right. The radical Whigs, the opposition
1: under Charles James Fox, supported the Americans. In fact, they dressed like officers of the Continental Army. They wore blue and buff to show their support of the uh, of the Americans, and uh, they consistently opposed the the war. And they got m- much more strong. It's rather you're quite right. The Vietnam analogy is a very um, strong one. Um, But it's also the case, of course, that the British didn't send enough troops to America. They, at the top moment, they had 50,000. But for most of the war, they had 35,000 troops attempting to hold down these 13 colonies. It just simply wasn't enough. But as you had to give each troop, every soldier, a third of a ton of supplies and food and ammunition and so on, And it became a logistical nightmare, as you say, to fight a war. It had never been done before in history to try and
0: fight a war 3,000 miles away. But if I may, back to the king for just a moment. If the opposition don't get invited to these drawing rooms, how does he know what the opposition is? Th- is he reading reports? Is he well and is he receiving an unbiased flow of information from the government? Mm. How does he know about the opposition? He's get, he's getting <clears> a daily <throat> report from the
1: prime minister about the goings on in the House of uh, Commons. And the interesting thing about some of these and it's reports, reliable. It's reliable. All oh right. yes. Well, first of all, it says it uh, says exactly how many people had voted and where and under what circumstances. Right. But right. also, it's very interesting how it does give a uh, or at least Lord, Lord North who was a was an amiable and affable figure even though he was a useless prime minister um, would if an opposition member made a good speech he would say so and tell the king i see i see
0: so these were gents these were gentlemen all right on to this the uh, the uh, the sh- uh, boston tea on to tea on to tea on to tea tea
1: was um, an expensive commodity But there was a hope and a chance that when the East India Company nearly went bankrupt in 1772, that it was going to be allowed to come and undercut the market in um, smuggled tea, essentially, uh, in Massachusetts and elsewhere, and bring the price of tea right down for the American consumer. Uh, of course, this wasn't going to be good for the Boston merchants who were doing the smuggling, um, and so as a result, in December 1773, they um, hired and, and uh, um, used employees to attack these, uh, these ships of the East India Company and destroy 9,000 pounds in weight of uh, tea overnight. And this was the point at which it, uh, it really got nasty because the uh, British government, the British cabinet, and the king all thought that the best way to deal with this would be to punish the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Mm -hmm. uh, Believing, and this is where the king was incredibly badly informed by the royal governors, that um, the rest of the colonies would not stand by Massachusetts. Uh. And they um, did, of course, hugely. And this was uh, the reason that um, only a um, little over a year later, well, 15, 16 months later, um, you get to the shooting war starting at Lexington and Concord.
0: Mm. We'll come to that in a moment. John Adams, you quote this. This is a very famous passage. This is John Adams writing to Thomas Jefferson years after the events. And Adams writes to Jefferson, the revolution was in the minds of the people and this was effected from 1769 to 1775 before a drop of blood was shed at Lexington. The records of 13 legislatures, the pamphlets, newspapers, show the steps by which public opinion was enlightened and informed concerning the authority of parliament over the colonies." Close quote. So what the government back in London is missing and therefore failing to convey to the king is, how do we put this, is an intellectual ferment. There is a new consciousness arising among these 13 colonies. They are beginning to think of themselves as Americans. And it happens, with, as Americans, they are elaborating their beginning notion of themselves as objecting to parliament but loyal to the king. They're elaborating their notions of the rights that they have as Englishmen there's an astonishing intellectual ferment which takes place by way of pamphlets and newspapers and it happens fast. That's right. Is that correct? It
1: it, it is correct, but also ever since 1763 in the Treaty of Paris where they discover that, of course, there's no outside threat. Right. They also have this proclamation in October 1763 which went out from the British government saying that the Americans could not um, colonize anywhere westwards of the Allegheny Mountains. Right. And that seemed to imply that the British just wanted to sort of um, keep the American colonies on the eastern seaboard and where they could have no sort of ambitions to expand. And you also um, have, as well as these, uh, these, these pamphlets, um, some absolutely superb orators who were uh, um, the the Patrick Henrys and the uh, and the Thomas Jeffersons and Madison and these people um, really were uh, first class um, Adams of course being a lawyer first class uh, people at essentially creating this whole new concept of uh, of independence and the and. and It's the right moment for America to become independent because you've got this 2.5 million population. You've got this uh, burgeoning year-on-year growth, uh, huge uh, economic growth, about 7% year-on-year. You've got uh, as many bookshops in more bookshops in Philadelphia than in any other city of the empire. And so all of these things are happening at the same time as um, as Parliament is essentially putting rather unnecessary Financial burdens, uh, even though they're small, uh, onto the
0: Americans. So, from the point of view of the king, or correct me, maybe it's better to think in terms of Lord North, his prime minister, this lovely man who was useless, as you say. What did they? What was in their heads? What did they think the colonies were? Oh, they very much saw it as part of a, gr- of a global
1: empire, uh, something that was also growing of course in the, uh, that already was part of the West Indies, uh, Africa and uh, India, the East Indies. And so they, they saw America as being an integral part of a sort of greater English speaking union that would eventually stretch. Uh, further and further around okay, the so world. I have
0: to keep, th- this again, it's like and we'll king- keep And therefore keep the French Empire in, in check. Ah, well, keeping the French in check is always worthwhile. <laughs> but um, I say to the author of a book on Napoleon. Um, <laughs> but this is, a, again, a difficult, a difficult one for a even as I, it's hard to understand the idea of kingship, which you grow up with, of course. S- likewise, it's difficult. What. All right, they're they're building an empire, but what for? To get rich? Is this a, a, is this principally a commercial enterprise? What are they doing it for?
1: No, it's a classic example of capitalism in action where the Americans were getting rich, uh, and indeed they were being taxed at something like 2% of the, uh, of what uh, the Britons were being um, taxed at. Oh, for the good old days. So, (laughs) exactly. Um, So there was virtually no regulation. There was very small bureaucracy and so on. and so what it was for was to be a, um, a, a great commercial global concept that um, was going to help everybody. It was going to help American development as well as uh,
0: British. And was it, uh, so the Spanish, we're talking about a couple of centuries earlier, but the Spanish are explicitly or at least Quite quickly in the Spanish expansion comes the notion of Catholicism and Christianity. That's not present in the same way in the British effort, is it? No, not at all. And also what you have to remember about the American
1: colonies is there, uh, is how many nonconformists there were. Right. So the Anglican church didn't have the kind of um, power in America that it had in Britain. And the nonconformists, especially the, the very low church ones, worried about an episcopacy being put up in, um, right. set up in um, America. And they certainly worried after the Quebec Act of 1774 allowed French Quebecois Catholics to retain their civil and religious rights that, um, that George III was going to impose Catholicism on uh, Americans. It's a mad conspiracy theory. We can see that it it does has no basis in fact whatsoever. There's certainly nothing in the 100,000 pages of George III's
0: Papers to suggest it's true, but a lot of people did believe it. All right. All right, we come now to war. 1775 and the Siege of Boston. The British Navy invests Boston Harbor with eight, ten warships, big expensive pieces of equipment that have sailed across the Atlantic. A proper fleet. Mm -hmm. And the Army puts on land how many thousands of men? I can't remember offhand, but it, it, it had already had 4,000 in Boston
1: since 14, since uh, 1768. So right. it's, a, it's a large army anyway. All right, and what role does the king play in making that decision? Um, very little, He um, he put ticks by the names of the four leading uh, major generals, but otherwise that was down to a combination of the Admiralty, the War
0: Office, um, the Treasury and the victualling Department, and and obviously the cabinet. All right. This is, this is in some ways the key to the whole argument. It was the king's fundamental respect for the concept of crown in parliament, that is to say for the limited monarchy, for deference to the elected commons, that helped bring about the American Revolution. Had King George III been a ruthless despot, Britain would have had a much better chance of winning the war. Well, and also of of
1: stopping the war from taking place because what he could have done is said, look, I'm king of America. And so I'm happy that the Americans have got uh, self-government and aren't paying taxation to uh, the British Parliament and so on. And so one of the uh, interesting things that some of the colonists asked for was for the king basically to um, step beyond his constitutional role and, uh, and become king of America. And that wouldn't require him physically to be in America, but it would require him to, preve- to prevent Parliament from taxing America or from having the veto rights over
0: American legislation. Oh, I see. So, so conceptually they're anticipating what we now think of as the Commonwealth. Yes. Where, th- where the Queen is Queen of Canada. Precisely, yeah. All right. But you don't get the
1: actual Commonwealth until 1931. A you know. bit later, <laughs> yes, right. And he wouldn't do that
0: because? Because he was a constitutional monarch. All right. Um, The nature of the war. On the one hand, the reader of this book gets the feeling that everybody's a bit reluctant about it, and George III is disappointed that it has come to this, and so forth. Also, that in some basic way, it's quite a gentlemanly operation on both sides. Uh, Starts uh, off to be starts that way. All right. So this is what I'm getting at. I I, I just because you. do such a good job of sticking up for your side. I do want to point out that when Washington <laughs> has put guns on Charleston Heights, he permits Howe to withdraw from Boston peacefully. When he could have, he could have ripped up the army a bit, the British army a bit. Yeah. All right. So how are we to understand? But at the same time, the battle, Battle of Bunker Hill, which is the first biggish battle, mm. 400 Americans are killed. That's a huge number, a shocking number, and over a thousand British are killed. This is these are. Shocking numbers for
1: small communities. Including 90 British officers. And so it's brought home who were, of course, aristocracy or, yes. or, or the high gentry at least. And so it's very much brought home to Britain's, um of the governing classes what is, is going on here.
0: When those mail packets reach London, there's a shock. There's
1: a, there's a shock throughout the country. People don't, it's a very unpopular war at the beginning in Britain, they find it very difficult to recruit any soldiers for it mm-hmm. because they are, seen as Britons, the Americans are seen as as cousins and, you know, they, they, many of them are actual
0: cousins. And you make
1: the point that there's no conscription. No, and so there's a lot of problems with, um, with recruitment because the war is very unpopular until um, the French get involved, (laughs) at which point it suddenly becomes tremendously popular uh,
0: for uh, for all sorts of Okay, Take us through, this is fascinating, again, um, bits and pieces of this that I picked up because, Americans learn bits and pieces, but take us through the military aspects of this. You, you make the point that there's really only one British war plan that's coherent.
1: Yes, uh, Lord George Germain, the um, American secretary in the cabinet, uh, it has a, what's called the Germaine Plan, mm-hmm. which is to send Sir William Howe up from New York, northwards up the Hudson, at the same time that Sir John Burgoyne is coming south down from Canada. And they were going to meet at Albany and thereby split the New England colonies off from the rest of the uh, of the colonies. And that was going to be the plan. The idea would then be to um, to crush the New England colonies. and. Uh, the problem was, there were several problems with the plan. I mean, apart from everything else, coordinating um, yes. in those days over those that many hundreds of miles uh, was uh, across enemy-held territory was in itself a problem. Um, also, to get, to get uh, any changes in the plan agreed in London took three months for a ship to get one um, way across the Atlantic and then with the prevailing winds in the other direction, the other side. But the major problem was that Sir William Howe veered off eastwards against the precepts of the plan and captured Philadelphia, which had lots of advantages. And it It was the American uh, capital and so on. But um, it did mean that the swarms of um, of, uh, American troops that were around Um, Burgoyne, could capture him at Saratoga in October 1777. And when they did that, um, and the French learned about it, Uh, France is drawn into the war, or at least steps forward, to try to split America off from its, uh, um, from Britain off from its American colonies. And the whole thing gets turned into a world war, especially when the next um, year the Spanish declare war against Britain, and then after that, the year after that, in um, 1780, the Dutch do as well. So from being a con- from being a co- colonial war, which however was difficult enough, which was which was was, was could well have been lost anyway, because um, as I say, we only had thirty-five thousand to fifty thousand troops and uh, at the absolute maximum. And once it became a world war, we went back down to 30 to 35,000. And we were stuck in the eastern seaboard cities. Of course, we captured Charleston in 1780. But otherwise, it was New York and, uh, and Newport. And, um, and there was a um, superb, I mean, it has to be said, a superb general in, in Washington. You know, his Fabian tactics of of retreating wherever he thought that he was going to be defeated, the way in which he managed to get off Manhattan, the counterattacks at uh, Trenton and and Princeton, the way in which he somehow kept that army together at Valley Forge, which was a truly astonishing um, act of charisma and and leadership. You know, George III, (laughs) he uh, compared to that his generals that um, were, were people like um, uh, Burgoyne and, and Howe, and later Cornwallis, um, who were simply not up to it. Mm.
0: It is quite, uh, you're as English as you can possibly be, and this is one of the many things that makes you so delightful, <laughs> but I must say it is bracing in this book to see that Andrew, Andrew Roberts goes into this history, and the people that we're taught, who knows what, Americans are taught these days now that we've all become woke and the 69 <laughs> all of that. In my generation was the people we were taught were great men, turn out to be great men. Yes. They stand up. Yeah. They do stand up. Not just not just of course in the uh, the soldiers in
1: the war, and the and the founding fathers before the war, but also and, with, and the sheer courage, of course, of standing up against the most powerful empire in the world is uh, is a uh, tremendous thing in itself because um, the American population was only about twenty percent of the of the British population. Um, but also, of course, the creation of the Constitution mm. as well. The idea that these are the same people who have the guts to do the fighting and then after the fighting have the genius to yes. put together such an extraordinary document.
0: It's courage and intelligence and prudence. It's just yeah. this bundle of virtues. And
1: against that, we've got Lord North
0: and yes. General Cornwallis. Well, you can't, al- <laughs> can't always be lucky, <laughs> So I want to come to the Declaration in a moment. But first, let's, let's, let's end the conflict. Can you get us to Yorktown and explain the role the French played and why that was viewed as decisive when, in fact, the war continued for some time after? Get, get us through all that, if you don't mind.
1: Yes, well, w- once Cornwallis had uh, landed uh, down, down in South Carolina and had made his way up to the Yorktown peninsula, um, which was g- going too fast and not uh, taking into account the huge irregular forces that were, uh, that were behind him, mm. He then... Uh, the American regulars. The American regulars. So he's exactly. exposing his supply lines. He's moving much he's, too quickly. He's, 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 right. Right. His um, supply lines are, to all intents and purposes, shot to pieces. Um, and uh, especially once he's positioned himself in, on the Yorktown Peninsula, uh, where he can be boxed in um, and, and was, the key role of the French is in their navy, is in Admiral de Grasse, um, who prevents him from being evacuated. Uh, from the Yorktown Peninsula, and instead in october seventeen eighty one he's forced to surrender with his whole force seven thousand men plus and that in effect brings to an end the um the shooting part of the um, of the American War of Independence, although not the actual war, which drags on because um, Lord North doesn't want to um, make peace. Mm. And the king supports him in this. This is uh, it's
0: important. The king is a last-ditcher um, in, what this, uh, in explain. this issue. So, can, can you, Cornwallis surrenders at Yorktown, devastating defeat even if you are a last-ditcher. What's the king's reaction? Do we know? Well, to
1: fight on. Mm, you see, this right. is the
0: thing. He, he says,
1: well, we've lost, uh, uh, two armies now, the other one being Burgoyne's. Uh, and, the, and the best thing now is to gird our loins and, 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 uh, and continue fighting. And as Max Boot points out in his book on irregular warfare, um, what, the, what the Romans would have done would just be to continue to send larger and larger armies right. until finally the, um, the American War of Independence was defeated. But uh, they didn't have a majority they needed in the House of Commons in ancient Rome, and uh, by that stage, Charles James Fox and the and the Whig Party were in a position
0: to um, prevent that war from continuing. And so when, how is it that the king is persuaded that it's over? How is it that, he, that he's persuaded that the Treaty of Paris really must be, that, 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 that <laughs> those negotiations really must be concluded? Um, it's a combination
1: of factors, but primarily it's, it's what's going on in the House of Commons. The fall of Lord North in the March of 1782, the incoming um, a radical government, the way in which they um, stop the funding. Vietnam again, yes. all over again. It's yes. 1975, essentially. Uh, they won't fund the war anymore, and, uh, and this is what finally persuades the king that, uh, that peace needs to be uh, signed. All and right. he wants, and uh, he has a, a prime minister that he appoints, Lord Shelburne, who wants to try and do a deal with the Americans whereby we, we keep New York and, and Newport, Rhode Island. I mean, it's the most extraordinary kind of thing that they could possibly have done. You'd imagined. have enjoyed
0: Newport, but New York we couldn't have spared. <laughs> it was quite a loyalist city, remember? New York, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, All right, so uh, again, I want to return to the declaration, but let's just last note on the revolution itself. June 4th, 1785, John Adams, now ambassador from the new nation of the United States, meets the king. Adams has memorized a little speech. He says, quote, I think myself to the king, I think myself more fortunate than all my fellow citizens in having the distinguished honor to be the first to stand in your majesty's royal presence in a diplomatic character," close quote. To which the king responded,
1: I can't remember the exact wording, but it's it's very gracious. Oh, no, that, it's very it's gracious indeed. Gracious. Yes, exactly. I wish I brought it with me. I mean, it's in the book, obviously. But um, uh, no, he's, he, he responds. He says, "I even though I was the first to um, support the idea of going to war, um, now that you've won, I welcome you as uh, as the um, representative of the new independent United States." It's right. a tremendously gracious way of dealing with it, and it doesn't stop there. His graciousness um, the, towards the uh, the People who had essentially, you know, taken away his uh, his uh, jewel in his crown, Um, but also when uh, George Washington retired as um, as president in March 1797, he said that uh, Washington was the greatest character of the age.
0: By the way, uh, it's a relief to me to discover that you're human after all. In all the years we've known each other, that's the first time I've, I've known you not quite to remember exactly. <laughs> exactly. I, I know, I had to paraphrase. Exactly. As a quotation. <laughs> all right, the Declaration. The other evening, uh, you gave a talk, and I was sitting there taking notes, and you referred to the Declaration of Independence as a propaganda document, close quote. Propaganda the document. wartime propaganda document. wartime propaganda exactly. document. Yeah. And I'm afraid that I'm required as a patriot to bristle just a little. Bristle we'll come to that. You explain, like. <laughs> explain, explain your argument. Well,
1: the war had been going on for 14 months by then. Mm-hmm. Um, there had been a lot of um, bloodshed, as we mentioned earlier, on, uh, on both sides. And in order to essentially um, make the American public recognize that loyalism was no longer an option for one third or so of the Americans. And also that this was not just a war against Parliament, but this was a war against the King. And this was not just about trying to get into some Commonwealth arrangement. This was about independence and sovereignty for the United States. Thomas Jefferson. War has hardened the position. War has hardened the position, and uh, as it as it always tends to, especially as this had uh, elements of a civil war to it. Yes. And so. And so, it was essential for the uh, Continental Congress to make a radical statement um, that would also work as propaganda against the king. And so, that there could be no longer any sense of any uh, loyalty towards the king. And so, there is no middle
0: ground. There's no middle ground. We eliminate any middle ground. Yes.
1: Uh, (coughs) The the shifting alliances and, and shifting moods um, have to solidify at this point by July 1776. And the statement had to be made that what we're fighting for is complete independence. And so he had to be, the king had to be vilified in order mm-hmm. to do that. You, you can't you can't say he's, he's a good king and he's a nice man and so on. You've got to create him as a, a monster a who, in the words of the Declaration of Independence, um, is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. Mm-hmm. And so the word tyrant crops up. Uh, relatively early, and is repeated um, uh, in the document, especially at the end. And there are these twenty-eight articles yes. that um, attempt to establish him as a as a tyrant and a monster.
0: Right. We better take a moment to explain that about the first third of the document is that wonderful preamble that we all we my lot all remember when in the course of human events and so forth. Yeah. But the.
1: I think even we, we like the you bit about life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness, so I have to I'm so happy say. to hear
0: it. Then it comes to 28 specific charges. Now, there aren't dates and numbers attached, but you get the feeling that, the, well, let's just put it this way. I have heard it said by people whom I think we would both revere but needn't go into, that the first bit of the document, the preamble mm-hmm. alone is, it's just up in the air. It's sublime, isn't it? It is sublime, yes, yeah. but it could almost be. It could take you in the direction of the French. It could be a kind of. It's not grounded. What makes it a conservative document? Which what. What, what demonstrates that this is a, that this is a conservative revolution? I'm making points that are important, as you will grasp. Very important. No, I could. And you can. Yeah. You can. Elaborate yeah, on it. Yeah. I was trying to set you up yeah. here. It's not it's trying to be a social revolution. It's trying to be a political revolution. Exactly. And it's grounded in this sense of common law. There are specific grievances. Yeah. The king has done specific. All right. And there are 28 charges. And you really will have nothing to do with 26 of them. You write, um, quote, only two stand up the 17th and 22nd charges. I'm looking at you. Can you remember those two? Yes, of course. All right, go ahead. The the 17th is the one about taxation. Right. uh, And
1: the 22nd is the one about Parliament having veto rights over American legislation. Right. And they are, in and of themselves, justification for the revolution, because that's what it's all about. And so um, you don't need the other 26. They are essentially padding. That, um, that padding they are padding they, they, they use,
0: why t- do you use these words are you trying to annoy <laughs> me propaganda and padding in yeah. the founding document of my country which, Andrew, which as i what say am I to do with which, you? which
1: which as i say the first third of which i, I love as much as you do i think All But right. the uh, but when he's accused of doing things that, um, that all of the previous monarchs had, had done without start sparking a revolution. The Navigation Acts that come in under Oliver Cromwell in 1650, for example. When he's accused of um, taking people across the oceans for trial, not one American was ever taken across any ocean for trial by George III. When he's accused of ex post facto rationalizations, essentially, of things that had already happened after the war had started, You've got to appreciate that what he's doing as a lawyer is padding his brief.
0: Well, all right, Kim, give me a little bit of space here. (laughs) Uh, I'll make a little bit of a speech here. Got it. and And then I'll just fall silent because this is the book and there are eight, what, hundreds of pages here that show that you've thought about this much more carefully than I have. However, it seems to me that when you go through the charges, well, The first charge, he's refused to assent to certain laws. And then I'm quoting you, the fact that the king had on relatively rare occasions exercised his constitutional right to veto colonial legislation did not prove that the right was an improper one any more than a presidential veto over legislation would today. But that's the point. Presidents are elected. Kings are not. There's something to that charge. It's not spurious. Entirely padding, it's saying we live in an arrangement in which that man over there on the other side of the water believes that he has the right to tell our legislatures, nope, not doing that, not doing that. Well, that's and there's right.
1: something to that. Yeah, there is something to the fact that Americans, American presidents are elected by Americans, of course. But the on the on the very very few occasions that he ever vetoed anything, which was usually because the royal governor had um, said that he recommended, it was a, 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 the veto. recommended right. a veto, and often because the and the royal governor very often, such as the divorce um, legislation, uh, said that it was because the um, the uh, legislature wanted it, but the American people didn't agree with it. Mm-hmm. So, so, in a sense, what he was doing was doing that thing from the idea of the Patriot King where his royal governor was representing the people against the, um, against the legislature. It happened on more than one occasion, but not but Not more, than, not more than half a dozen. All right. And the idea that you, you're going to have a revolution and kill people about that is, um, is something
0: that, well, uh, but you uh, know. Uh, oh, all right, let me do one more of these. <laughs> yeah. Again, I'm just going to quote you. I'm quoting you against yourself. The fourth, fifth, and sixth charges refer to interference with colonial legislatures. The Virginia Assembly had been dissolved in 1765 over the Stamp Act and the the Virginia, Massachusetts, and South Carolina legislatures in 1768 over the Massachusetts circular letter, but none of these actions was unconstitutional under the laws pertaining at the time." Close quote. However, they, they do offend this crystallizing consciousness that we're Americans. No, Nobody ought to have the right to dissolve our assemblies. No, I
1: agree, and, and that's why, you know, ultimately right. abe- independence, as I say, in a, was the right historical moment of, for the development of America. Um, but it's not, you know, the, the fact that those were not going to be uh, dissolved forever, they were going to be dissolved and then um, allowed to, uh, to reconstitute, it was, um, It's not um, a tyrannical act to to do that.
0: Okay, I'm going to propose a settlement between you and me. (laughs) And the settlement is your point. Your point is that that he wasn't a tyrant. He wasn't Frederick the Great. He wasn't Catherine the Great. Actually, the Great is a bit of a so seldom a good sign. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But my well, so let me quote, if I may, the great historian, the great American historian of the American Revolution, Bernard Bailyn. This is a longish longish quotation, but I'm going to indulge myself. If you'll indulge me as well. Absolutely. So, Balin writes about this intellectual ferment. There were probing speculations, theories, by which a generation convinced of the importance of ideas and politics attempted to deal with the problems they faced. But they were not mere mental gymnastics. Balin might also have said they were not mere propaganda or not mere padding, I might suggest. Up and down the still sparsely settled coast of North America, groups of men, intellectuals and farmers, scholars and merchants, the learned and the ignorant, gathered for the purpose of constructing enlightened governments. During the single year 1776, eight states drafted and adopted constitutions. Two of these state constitutions adopted before independence. Everywhere there were discussions of the ideal nature of government. Everywhere principles of politics were examined, institutions weighed, and practices considered," close quote. So, all right, he wasn't a tyrant. Can I, can I I
1: quote an American historian of this period as well, Richard Brookhiser? who says that uh, America in the 1760s and early 1770s was the free, amongst the freest com- uh, societies yes, in the yes, world. Yes, 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 yes. So these, of course, these people were talking about all these um, essentially seditious things. And what did the king? Seditious. And what did the king, well, because it, it, yes. they lead to a revolution. So they, they are totally seditious <laughs> in a sense. But what did the king do about any of that? Did he try and clap anyone in jail for it? Did he try and shut their newspapers? Did he try and arrest them? No. Catherine the Great would have hung them. So he's a different man from that. All of that discussion, he didn't try and stop the First Act Congress or the First Continental Congress from meeting. You know, this is the kind of thing that a tyrant
0: who had troops in the, in the uh, region would have done. Okay, well, so let's do a, a counterfactual then. You seem to me uh, to be granting the point which is that this was a time, Valen's point is that yeah. this is a time of astonishing, Intellectual and cultural ferment. Exactly this is right. this really and truly does bear comparison with 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 the Greece of Pericles. Yes, something is really it's happening, happening here. Yes. So what is the counterfactual? How could have if the if if the North government and the King had recognized that there was a growing consciousness on the other side of the Atlantic of I think what what will we call it nationhood as opposed to colonies, that they are thinking through the rights that they're elaborating on their rights as English subjects mm -hmm. and coming up with how do we avoid the war? What they, well, we avoid the war by having um, William Pitt, the
1: elder, when he becomes prime minister in 1766, uh, who, let's say, doesn't have such debilitating gout that he's unable to be prime minister and is able to he's go He's too to old them. and unwell. The he's, he's, the he's gone mentally, it's the, the gout has mentally affected him to the point that he uh, can't meet the king for two years, key years, 1766 uh, to 68, but instead of that, what we have is a, as a fit uh, William Pitt, the elder, who, um, who who can see far enough into the future, or indeed can just look over the Irish Channel to the Irish Parliament, and gives the Americans their own Parliament, uh, a Parliament which is a single body that speaks for the whole of the 13 colonies. You coagulate, amalgamate, sorry, the um, the 13 colonies into one um, essentially nation-state, which is uh, self-governing. You have the, co-
0: the commonwealth concept in 1766 rather than in 1931. All right, it has to happen a little bit soon. It has to happen before the siege of Boston. It has to happen before Lexington, right? Mo- of course. Before, yeah. before, before, before it, all the intellectuals I- I eliminate the middle listen, ground. It,
1: no, it, I, well, exactly. I, what it has to do, really, is come before the, um, uh, it, between the repeal of the Stamp Act and the Boston Tea Party. I see, all right. Well, now that we've rewritten history. And can I just say what will happen after that? Of course. Um, because what will happen after that, if the English-speaking people somehow stayed together as a single political entity into the early 20th century, the Kaiser cannot start the First World War. There's no way he could invade Belgium if America is a. If we're if, already in, we, so to speak. If, 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 the, if the America is a part of the, of the same entity as, uh, as Britain. Without the First World War, you have no Nazis, no Bolsheviks, no uh, Holocaust, and the world's a much happier place.
0: I can't gainsay a word of that. I'm tempted to, I'm trying, it'll occur to me, but I can't gainsay a word of it right now. All right, after America, all this is absolutely fascinating, and I've enjoyed every moment of that, but the man, George III, uh, Treaty of Paris Ends the Revolution in 1783, the man reigns for another 37 years. And in that time, Britain largely consolidates its position in India, it's still the East India Company, not, hasn't been taken over by the government, but it consolidates its position in India, uh, sets in place the first rudiments of steam-powered industry, defeats Napoleon, enlarges the navy. By the time he dies in 1820, the stability of the throne is taken for granted as it could never have been 59 years earlier when he ascends to the throne, and Britain has assumed the place in world affairs that it will retain for 150 years as the most powerful nation on earth. What role did George III play in post-America Britain?
1: Um, He played a major role, but um, in some of the things that you mentioned, such as the Industrial Revolution that you mentioned, he played no um, appreciable role whatsoever. He never visited a factory, never went down a mine. Mm. Um, In other aspects, like the Napoleonic Wars that you mentioned, um, he played a a, a very significant role because he was part of the um, William Pitt the Younger, sort of internal revolution, essentially, which um, meant that we didn't make peace with France. And revolutionary and Napoleonic France needed to be ground down, essentially. And when the Prussians uh, fought it for 53 months, the Austrians for 108 months, and the Russians for 53, 58 months, we fought, Britain fought against Revolutionary and Napoleonic France for 242 months. Mm. And this is largely because the king will not make peace with a regicide and atheistic um, country like, um, like Revolutionary France. So th- they're the last ditch um, tendencies work. Yes.
0: All right. War but of v- course,
1: by the, it's so sad because by the time Waterloo happens, the great moment of victory comes. He is—he's uh, blind and deaf, and he's gone mad, and he's senile, uh, living in um, Windsor Castle, playing his harpsichord, and is under—you know—he d- he doesn't know that he doesn't even
0: aware. So, War of eighteen twelve, as we call it, when British troops burn the White House. What's going on there? That's, again, not got nothing to do with him, unfortunately. He has his... Unfortunately. So, so
1: apologies, fortunately. <laughs> apologies. I, I, I realize I can tease you so much, Peter, but I can't go All too right. far. All right. No, All right, I meant unfortunately. I, um, I meant fortunately. Uh, he, he um, in the um, February of 1811, um, by which time he's gone mad for the last time, um, three months before that, there's a Regency. And uh, and all of the um, regency after meaning that. that his son, his his son, who son becomes, becomes George the
0: fourth, who becomes ruler is Prince Regent with all the powers of the king. Right, he now signs okay. legislation. Holds uh,
1: he, he, he holds cabinets. He appoints prime ministers. He declares war on America. I
0: see. Mm-hmm. I see. All right. And um, all right. He reigns for f- fifty nine years. You quote the obituary that appears in the Manchester Guardian. Quote, actually a lovely thing, I think. In the perplexity of nations, the throne of the King of England was the only one unshaken, and its stability was the work of his virtue. That's a true statement. Yes. But again, at the end of this conversation, as at the beginning, I have to ask you the notion of kingship. Why do we care that the throne is secure? Um,
1: <laughs> we care because it is um, the thing that makes Britain secure. You only have to look 22 miles across the English Channel to see the when the King of France has his head chopped off and indeed the Queen of France, then um, the next stage is the terror. And you go straight from 1793 executing the king to 1794 when they're, when they're guillotining 40,000 people a year. And um, we, nobody wanted that to happen in, uh, in Britain except for some of the extreme uh, radicals. Um, and that explains his tremendous popularity. That and the fact that he'd got over his his most serious bout of illness um, of, that, uh, of that point. And so he's seen as somebody who's Farmer George, who is interested in the way that uh, people made 80% of Britain's Made their livelihoods in agriculture. He's seen as being frugal in terms of what he eats and drinks, uh, being financially prudent, being hardworking, immensely hardworking. How many children? Fifteen children. Um, I'm not saying that that implies hard work, but um, Uh I am saying that he's a family. He's very much a family man. Right. Uh, he, but he is—he's so hardworking, and he dates his letters to the minute, uh, all of them. You can see how many he's writing about all sorts of issues, and he's also got this tremendous sense of both Christian piety and duty, and so. Uh, if you're looking for the, um, for a template for the modern monarchy for Her Majesty the Queen today, uh, you can do an awful lot worse than, than go back to George III. Third. Mm.
0: From George III to Andrew Roberts for a moment. Here's the last King of America. Here's your book on Churchill. Here's your book on Napoleon. You add all the books that you've written, it is an astonishing achievement. Thank and you. you're not even that old. Oh, that's sweet. I think of myself at fifty-eight as quite old, Peter. <laughs> so so Andrew, how do you do it? What are your so give me your research methods. How do you go through these masses of material that you must master to produce this? And then tell me about your writing methods. Well, the research is obviously the most fun bit of uh,
1: writing the book, where you go to the Royal Archives or this uh, fantastic um, collection that the Queen has put online that King's College London and the Georgian Papers pro- uh, program have um, have uh, made available. And, um, and then you go around the country to various other archives. And, and how many
0: research assistants do you
1: have? I've never employed one and never will. Not ever. It's too dangerous. Um, and. And then, once you've got all of the information together, you sit down and, and write the book. There are some historians who don't, who, who write it as they get the information. And I am terrified of doing that, just in case you come across a piece of information that completely invalidates right. <laughs> months and months of interpretation of chapter 27. Right, <laughs> exactly.
0: Right. So, um, so, so that's all it is. And, and yeah. All right. No, no, but I want to know about the writing method. You, you and I have discussed this, but I'd like to put this, I'd like the world to see, to hear how you actually go about. Writing um, a book like this.
1: Right. Well, once I've got all the information together, I, um, I start work at between 4.30 and 5 o'clock in the morning every morning. And then uh, after lunch, I have a 45-minute Churchillian nap. And then I go back to, um, to writing. So I can fit quite a lot of time into the day. I do try to make sure that I'm not doing anything in the evenings apart from, you know, having dinner with my wife. I don't um, socialize whilst I'm writing the
0: book terribly much. But you you put in so you go from 5 you put in 7 hours before breaking for lunch. Yeah. And that 7 I mean, no, but the thing how is many time, so how many times how many times you turn away from the keyboard to play Sudoku. Or, oh, I see. <laughs> or, 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 yeah, that's seven hours that of focus and
1: concentration. But um, also, uh, it's, it's quite, it's it's fun. You know, I mean, it's not as though it's work. Uh, writing history is, is tremendous fun. All
0: right. Um, <laughs> once again, Hamilton.
1: What comes next? You've been freed. Do you know how hard it is to lead? You're on your own. Awesome. Wow. Do you have a clue what happens now?
0: Do you have a clue what happens now, says George III in Hamilton. 250 years later, How is the Anglo-American project coming along, Andrew? Well, what happened next for America, of course, is that it
1: became the greatest um, nation in the world. Fortunately, we uh, handed on the baton to, uh, or at least had the baton um, taken from us by a a power that has the same aspects of law and language and liberty, that has uh, the same precepts of of decency in a law-based world order. And uh, therefore, we couldn't have been luckier really as Britons that the people who come next uh, are the Americans um, who've already established through this constitution that they are a great nation. So it's totally different, really, um, from today, where the successor top dog world power is one. That is essentially totalitarian. They haven't succeeded to
0: top dog just yet. Not yet. Not Not yet. No. But their
1: GDP is going to be um, outstripping yours at some stage in the next ten to fifteen years. Um, There are parts of the South China Seas that I'm worried um, the U.S. fleet isn't going to be able to get to. Uh, You look at what's happening in Ukraine and uh, and the possibility of Taiwan. The um, horrors of the idea of an Iranian bomb. You know the the Anglo-American Uh, sort of world order, uh, which we've enjoyed, uh, thank God, for the last um, 75 plus years, is under severe
0: and dangerous threat today. So is there an argument, this actually we haven't discussed, so I'm just trying to, I'm I'm floating one out for you. Is there an argument, China's 1.4 billion, this country's 350 million, can't do that alone. You just can't do that alone. Um, Is there an argument that there is something in the British heritage that remains of immediate importance. That is to say, to stand up to China will require the United States and Australia and India and Canada and, of course, Britain itself and perhaps as many bits and pieces of the Commonwealth countries as one can get precisely because although we rebelled against you and we've had our disagreements over the years somehow or other you look at uh, Franklin Roosevelt and Churchill and you look at Margaret Thatcher and Reagan and all these years later and I put it to you but obviously want to hear what you have to say and about George it.
1: Bush and Tony Blair George you know. Bush and Tony yeah. Blair
0: yeah. but even even as Indira Gandhi is playing games with the Soviets and trying to pull, there's something about India as a democracy after all. The working language in India is English. There is something in the British heritage, even at this vast remove of decades, that remains of use and may be necessary. I I couldn't agree more. I I
1: like to see it as uh, it's called the Anglosphere. Mm -hmm. Um, It's something that definitely exists. When you look at intelligence, the Five Eyes Intelligence, you look at this wonderful AUKUS um, pact that we have. The
0: AUKUS pact is Australia, the United States,
1: and? And Britain. And Britain. Yes, exactly. Um, You look at the amount of trade between us, uh, and as I say, the law and language and so on. There is undoubtedly something that um, could be and is a serious counterpoise to the um, upcoming and dangerous totalitarian threat from National Socialist China.
0: All right. Um, One final time, let me quote you, The Last King of America. George's sense of duty had a profound effect upon the monarchy. When we look at the reign of Elizabeth II with its leitmotif of hard work, conscientiousness, Christian piety, abstemiousness, philanthropy, and uxoriousness, we indeed see George III. Last question then, and this is again an American fumbling around for something that doesn't really come naturally to us. Next year, Elizabeth II will celebrate her 70th year on the throne and turn 97. She is powerless and yet she is omnipresent. How do you sum up her reign? Does the monarchy still matter in some way? I think it does matter to all patriotic Britons and
1: to everybody in the 16 um, countries of which she's queen and the 54 countries of the Commonwealth. I think that she shows um, in her own personality this sense of duty, of commitment. When she was 21, she said that uh, her whole life would be spent um, in the uh, service of the uh, people of the Commonwealth. And that's exactly what's happened. So you have a woman who made a promise to people on her 21st birthday and has spent the next more than half a century, more than 70 years uh, fully fulfilling that promise to the letter. And that's something I think that, um, that anybody is going to respect and admire and, and thank her for.
0: Mm. Andrew Roberts, author of The Last King of America, The Misunderstood Reign of George III, Thank you. Thank you very much, Lisa. For Uncommon Knowledge, the Hoover Institution, and Fox Nation, I'm Peter Robinson.